Welcome to episode 63 of FRT, the IEF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, once again in Washington, but this time our guest is not. And I think that's going to be a new reality for a while as we all adapt to working from home and maintaining our social distancing to helpfully help stem the flow of COVID-19. Our guest today is Chris Skinner. Chris is joining us from his home in Poland. Chris is a highly acclaimed and successful author with past titles that included Digital Human, Digital Bank and Banking Rebooted. He saw the power and the potential of digitalization long before it burst into the mainstream, and he continues that trend with his new book, Doing Digital. We had planned to host Chris in person, both in Washington and in New York in April, but we adapt with the times. And as well as the core subject matter at hand, Chris is also familiar and adept with the working from home scenario, sharing some useful tips on his blog, The Financier, recently. Chris, welcome to FRT, and thank you for joining us. Hey, hi, Brad. Social distancing, maybe, but social media, thank goodness. <laughs> Absolutely. I think we have to start with COVID-19. This really first emerged into the international consciousness in late January, I think really during the same week that we met in Davos. Chris, you and I spoke at the ABSA Lounge on the Tuesday of that week, and I really felt this issue suddenly leapt into the mainstream on the Thursday. I recall chatting about it at Refinitiv's headquarters there with Sim Shalabala and Sherry Madeira while we were prepping for FRT episode 59. And of course, it's now manifested itself in greater dislocation for us in Europe and North America over the last couple of weeks. You've tweeted about some of your own experiences in trying to navigate your own travels through payments mechanisms and amidst the imposition of lockdowns. And also, you've alluded to the disruption in, in bank call centres. What stands out for you in how banks are adapting and handling the, the current crisis? There's three or four things. I mean, the first for me was when the Polish government decided to cancel all international air connectivity. And that decision was made on a Friday evening and implemented on the Saturday. So it was like immediate and shocking because suddenly thousands of people flying in and out of Poland were stuck, including a friend of mine, for example, who's based in England and has um, cancer and is going through a course of chemotherapy who is visiting relations in Poland and suddenly couldn't get home. Um, so it's, first of all, this shocking idea that we don't control our lives anymore. But then when the whole world shuts down, it's not just Poland, you accept it because it's not just you being impacted, but it's everybody. And it's when you feel like you're isolated in one place without everyone else um, feeling the impact that you you worry about things. Uh, and now that the whole world is shut down, we're all having to get to grips with what does that mean. For the banks, it's quite interesting in that um, obviously uh, we are all worried about our income. And I'm calling my bank and I, 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 to begin with, I get no answer because all of their staff are being told to stay at home. And specifically with one of my bank providers, they have a offshore contact center in India and India shut down. So not only did they have the disruption of their offshore call center being shut, but they also couldn't actually replace it with staff in their um, main office because their main office was also shut. So this is amazing disruption to the system. But what I think was interesting is that um, the challenger banks, the fintech companies, the new digital organizations actually managed to continue operations almost smoothly because they had planned for such scenarios. And equally, they have a lot of staff already who have the flexibility to work from home. They don't have to come into a main office. So the challenger banks in the UK, Monzo, for example, had already tested the scenario of a lockdown of people have been forced to stay at home and how that would work. And their operations continued with almost no interruption. 
unlike the big um, banks who literally, as I say, couldn't take any, any phone calls for 72 hours. It brings it home to me that we are in a world that is going to be far more digital. We're all getting used to the idea of working from home and using video conferencing via technology on the internet. We're all getting used to making payments digitally. That will just become a lot more common. It's going to be far more recognized that we can't do things physically, we can do things digitally. And the only thing, and it's a point I keep making to a lot of people right now, is that as there was no backup for physical operations, suddenly it melted down and we couldn't actually do, do things in offices. There has to be a backup for our digital operations. If the internet failed during this particular moment, I think we would all be going stir crazy. I mean, I'm going stir crazy as it is. If I didn't have the internet, I think I would be in an asylum. There's a really key dependency there. But I think some of what you described there also, uh, I think it, it, um, it parallels a, a short piece that we wrote earlier in the week at the IF, building off our digital transformation series with Deloitte, in which we had identified that a lot of what we heard from chief digital officers and heads of innovation right now is uh, the technology is generally still holding up, but that the people and the culture issues within a large institutional firm uh, are a lot more challenging and that being able to adapt and have that agility, it's kind of a, a similar challenge to digital transformation writ large and that often the investments in the technology uh, can work, but it's the human challenge in how you actually unlock and, and get the value from that. Does that seem familiar to you? Yeah, I think there's a core point here, which is that I'm probably quite unusual in that I've worked pretty much from my home office for 20 years. And my home office is actually my laptop, um, traveling around the world, connecting and using the cloud. Most people haven't had that um, experience. Most people do go to an office, do have a nine till five, do use corporate computing and are not used to the idea that they have to become suddenly severed and um, you know, work on their own. I think there's a lot of learnings here. You know, it took me a good couple of years to get used to working in a home a home office environment. And I posted some stuff on this about my, um, ha, you know, what I feel are good disciplines on my blog the other day. So, for example, I always have the radio or television on in the background, so it feels like there's office noise, that there's people around. Uh, I always have a, a lock on my office door because I don't want the family coming in when I'm doing my work. I always try and work and be in the office from nine in the morning till six in the evening because I want to continue a discipline of a work ethic. It's very easy to get distracted and go and do shopping or other stuff. You've got to filter out all those things, but it takes time to get used to that filter and to create that environment. So I think there's a lot of learnings here, but what will be interesting is post-crisis, a lot of businesses will probably say, you know what, it's actually pretty good to have people working in a network environment rather than in a physical office because you can be as productive without necessarily having to have eight hours or 10 hours in a building that we're paying for. You pay for your own building, your, it's your home. And as long as you achieve these objectives and these outcomes, then we're happy. So an objectives-based office of the future is probably going to be fast-tracked because of the coronavirus, which actually will be interesting to see in the next five or 10 years how that changes our whole work ethic and structure. Absolutely. And I think you've alluded there to some of the... Uh, there was a great blog piece that you posted a few days ago called The Rush to Digitalization Post-Pandemic, and as well as sharing some of those tips for adapting to working from home. I really liked how you, you went on to to highlight things like the use cases for blockchain in tracking and tracing health, the roles that firms like Tencent and Ant Financial have played in the response, the rise of contactless and biometric payments, 
um, I posted a few things yesterday about the the increases in contactless payment limits that we've seen this week in the UK and Croatia and Hungary as a couple of examples. But I think as we we take some of those examples, as, as we try to look ahead to the post-COVID world, are there particular innovations that you would focus on or, or that you see most potential for? There's a number. I mean, in particular, I think we've all realised because of this crisis that paper is not a good method of transacting. A lot of us are going towards digital transactions and getting rid of cash. And although cash is key in a crisis, for example, most people are trying to get liquidity at the moment. They're worried about their short-term ability to actually survive and get food. And the best way to survive and get food is to have cash. But what form of cash? And I think that's an interesting question. A digital cash transaction makes far more sense than a physical cash transaction when you have a plague or a pandemic, a virus. And you mentioned contactless. It's interesting here, for example, in Poland, that contactless is pervasive and ubiquitous. But at the same time, the number of times I'm requested to enter my PIN in a contactless transaction for security makes me really nervous because who else has Mm -hmm. touched that PIN pad? Who else has spread germs on that pad? So I think the move towards biometric payments will become, again, another key trend. Um, In China for a while now, they've been using a technology called smile to pay You literally do not have to do anything other than say, I'm buying this on the app on your phone and touch nothing, just give a facial recognition. That sort of technology, I think, will become very mainstream very quickly because of the virus. We're going to move to a world where you know we don't want to touch things. We don't want to have physical connectivity with anyone other than those that we trust and the things that we trust. You know, our own devices, our own family, everything else, just stay away. Um, and so there's a lot of movement towards digitalization that will be fast-tracked over the next year or so because of what's happening right now. I'm not saying you know that's a, a good thing because in some ways I quite like some of the things that we have today. I'm a big collector of currencies and historical money. But if everything digitalizes in the next 12 months and it keeps us safe and healthy, then okay, I'm all for it. Mm. So, well, I think it's important we have that current context and the COVID backdrop does dominate conversation at the moment. Some of these trends of digitalization and transformation are enduring ones that proceed and will extend beyond current events. So let's take that as a cue and turn to your new book, Doing Digital. Obviously, your uh, your launch date has unfortunately been affected by the uh, some of the supply chain disruptions right at the moment, but I gather it will be available in electronic form such as Kindle from April 7. Uh, I'll be jumping on and, uh, and ordering it for that time. You spent a lot of time delving for this book, delving in behind the scenes at JP Morgan, BVVA, ING, DBS, and China Merchants Bank, looking at each of their digitalization efforts. Can you give us a sneak preview of some of the key insights you've gleaned? Sure, Brad. I mean, you know that I'm quite a traveler, and I have been for um, most of my working life, to be honest, but particularly in the last decade. Maybe that will calm down now because of what's happening right now. But at the same time, I uh, have written various books, and I got to the stage when I was thinking about my next book a couple of years ago, thinking... I'm fed up with people saying that banks are dumb and stupid, that they'll be disrupted and destroyed by technology, because I don't believe that's going to happen, and I don't believe they're dumb and stupid. I know a lot of very intelligent people in banks, but I do think that they are fundamentally challenged by the network and the digital effect that we're going through of that network on our phones and in our lives. So I wanted to try and see whether I could learn something from banks that are dealing with this challenge. 
and what they could tell me. And so I wrote down a list of the five biggest banks in the world that I thought were doing digital transformation pretty well from an external viewpoint and reached out to them and said, can I come and visit with you and interview you and find out what you're doing and what you're learning? And amazingly, they all said yes. So JP Morgan Chase, BBVA, ING, China Merchants Bank, DBS, allowed me to come in and spend um, hours of time talking with them about what they're going through. And the outcome of all of that is a mixture of several things. You know, they all have some commonality around their experiences, although there's also a lot of uniqueness around the way in which each of them are approaching doing digital transformation. The one thing that's common to all of them is that they don't treat digital as a channel or as a project. They treat it as a fundamental restructuring of the business from the old analog physical business that distributed paper to this new digital global structure of data. And so they don't treat this as a project. It's a fundamental business transformational change. And then sprinkle into the interviews my experiences of doing technology in finance for longer than probably most of us can remember. And out of that came around 30 or more lessons that I've itemized in the book. Um, And they're not an ABC or one, two, three of doing digital transformation. It's more a case of saying, if you understand these 30 things, then you'll probably get it more right than wrong. Bottom line here, and this is really what came home to me in one of the interviews, is every company I meet, and it's not just in banking, it could be in resale or airlines or manufacturing or media, you know, everywhere, is struggling with how to deal with digital transformation and the internet and the smartphone and 5G and everything else that we're going through. Working out how to change is the most difficult part. So working out what to change and how to change is the most difficult thing that all these five banks said to me they had to get to grips with. And I think those are the two phases, the big phases, that take the the, the most work. You know, One CFO of one of the banks said to me, our previous chief executive knew we had to change he just didn't know what to change or how to change the bank. And that's the bit that you really have to hone in on. You know, what do you have to change? How do you have to change? And how do you get it right? And make sure it's the right change. Because if you obviously get the wrong change, then you're going to go out of business. It's a really good point. And it's, it's one thing we've grappled with a little bit in the, the work that the IF's been doing with Deloitte in, in interviewing chief digital officers is the extent to which you know, customer centricity is sometimes, you know, for some people, I think it's the, the motive or the driver for why you need to do the transformation program. But for others, it's kind of the key enabler of what you need to keep coming back to, to keep yourself on track, to ensure that you're transforming in the right way and ensuring that you are, are relevant for your customers and not that you end up running a transformation program that spins wheels and doesn't actually fix the, the underlying issue. Yeah, and I, and I think a lot of this is down to the leadership and the executive team at the institution, as I say, it doesn't necessarily have to be a bank, it could be any business. Because if the leadership doesn't really feel committed to transformation, then you end up with incremental change with technology. You end up with a chief digital officer who's given the project, the budget, and creates a function called digital. Uh, That's never going to succeed because when we talk about digital, it's actually the organization and the culture and the business. It's not a function of project and a channel. And I find this fundamental confusion, it still exists in most companies, which they don't really get digital at a leadership team level. 
Again, what's interesting about the five banks I chose, JP Morgan Chase, BBVA, ING, China Investment Bank, DBS, I keep mentioning them because part of the reason why I chose them is because externally I could see that they were really understanding that digital is a transformation of the business, not just a project. Then I realized when I met these institutions that the reason why they feel that way is their chief executive and chairman and leadership team understand this is a business fundamental change and not a project. You have to put the whole of the organization behind digital, not just assign it to some function and delegate it. You can't delegate the future of the company. You've got to own it. I think that's a really important point. And it's actually one I wanted to raise with you is about the, the role of leadership. I've had some people observe at times that there's been a lot of turnover in chief digital or chief innovation officer positions, at least relative to some other C-suite roles. And I've sometimes countered that view by calling out the notable exceptions of, of people like Benoit Legrand at ING or Neil Cross, formerly at DBS, each of whom have had much more considerable longevity at those, uh, those places and obviously firms that you've explored for this book. And I wondered whether the, the success of those people has been attributed to the support of having visionary CEOs like Ralph Hamer's currently at ING, but on his way to UBS, and, and obviously Piyush Gupta at DBS, and that it's that CEO support buy-in has been perhaps the catalyst to then enable a chief digital officer that can, can help, I guess, expand and, and ensure that there's a network of, of champions throughout the organization more widely. Is that how you see it? Uh, yes, it's quite interesting in that when you mentioned Benoit at ING or Neil at um, DBS, that the remit they were given is very different to what I hear from a lot of other chief innovation officers or chief digital officers. So a lot of you know people I meet uh, are given the role of saying, we want you to do innovation, which is to actually make it look to the press and PR people and the external world as though we're edgy and leading edge you know, create some whiz-bang projects and do some jazz hands. And, you know, it's all innovation theatre. It's not really doing innovation at all. Mm. Um, one of the key things that Neil said to me, which stayed with me, is that a DBS, when he was given the role of chief innovation officer, he wasn't actually given a project or a thing to do except for, and this was the um, brief from Piersch, get the organization to understand what this means, get the buy-in from the people in the company, create a culture of innovation and bring our people through. It was actually far more around the cultural and managerial aspects of change than doing something. And I think that that's a really interesting perspective of when I talk about doing digital. I almost called the new book Being Digital. And then I thought being doesn't sound you know, active, doing sounds like you're actually making something happen. But being digital, being innovative, being on the network, it's all about having everybody in the business feeling like that they are included. And that's really what Neil and Benoit and other institutions are doing in their digital transformation. They're saying, we've got 25,000 people, 250,000 people. We want you all to be part of this. We want you all to feel that this is a change that you can be included within and make happen and that you can actually internalize this and put it in your heart and mind, not just in your mind. And that's a criticality. It's a cultural thing. Digital transformation, it's not about technology at all. It's about humans. It's about people feeling that they can make that something they can act upon and be part of. 
I should also mention that, that Ralph and Piyush and also BBVA's Carlos Torres Villa are each on the IAF's board of directors and they've each been extremely active in setting the IAF's agenda on digital topics, uh, also along with Sim Shalabala that I mentioned earlier from Standard Bank. So I'm gratified to hear that we're listening and taking our cues from the right leaders. You've touched there a little bit on the cultural issue as being, I guess, the dominant challenge. And in the IAF paper that we published with Deloitte recently, we certainly heard very much a similar theme to that. Another big theme we heard was about bank and fintech partnerships, and that a key part of the transformation effort is in collaborating with other parties, such as fintech firms, bringing in skills and capabilities that bank themselves may lack. And I thought this was really the the number one theme at the Singapore Fintech Festival last November, and the sense that perhaps the banks that are preparing themselves to be able to effectively partner with other entities will be the ones that are best positioned to survive and indeed thrive. Interested in any thoughts you have on on that theme and whether that's you know, a point that's resonated with you. Also noting that that from our, our recent paper with Deloitte, two of the big challenges we heard were opposite sides of the same coin, that on one hand, some of the fintech firms are not yet enterprise ready or, or scalable for working with a, a large institution, but equally that the banks themselves often have cumbersome processes or cultures that are, are not conducive to onboarding a fintech and that there's a I guess, a shared problem and a shared need to, to overcome in order to be able to uh, affect the fruits of or deliver the fruits of such collaborations. Is that something you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we're going through coronavirus to one side is actually a very fundamental shift in the whole way in which we think about work, life and business as we digitalize everything, which actually, going back to what we said earlier, the coronavirus will probably um, speed up um, rather than slow down in terms of working from home, connecting socially via technology rather than face-to-face, etc. And that's something that I've been talking about for a long time, and as I say, will be escalated in the next decade. The issue that a lot of banks have is that they were built for physical structures of distribution. And the fact that they've collapsed for 72 hours when this virus working from home mandate came in is a good illustration of that physical model collapsing. But working with a new startup community is massively challenging. And a lot of that's to do with the fact that traditional large financial institution or any institution that has millions of customers and billions in capital gives it an arrogance that makes them think that they can do everything themselves or if they have people that want to partner with them, they can treat badly. And you never have a partnership where one of the partners is stronger. You know, mm. A partnership has to be equitable. And that's very difficult for a bank to get culturally adapted to because they naturally believe that they are the stronger of the two. And so when a fintech startup has something really interesting that a bank wants, to try and be humble and work in a way in which you are equitable with that small startup, it's really difficult. Equally for the startup, it's very difficult because what happens, and I've seen this quite often in practice, is that they want to work with the bank because the bank has the millions of customers and the billions of capital. So they open their doors to the bank as a partner, believing they'll get an equitable relationship and give away a lot of their ideas. And then the bank just steals them. And that's not a good thing, obviously, because then the bank copies what the startup is doing and doesn't need the startup to work with them. Some people say that's unfair business practice. Most people would say, well, it's the way the cookie crumbles. So you have to go in with eyes wide open. From a bank's perspective, you have to recognize that you have to create an equitable relationship with any partners in fintech you want to work with, no matter how young or how small. And for a fintech startup, you have to go into a bank and recognize that if you don't get the right documentation and NDAs and contracts in place, then they're going to steal all your ideas. So don't give away everything until you've got those in place. 
Chris, you've spent time with five major banks for this particular book, not only, as you've mentioned, ones that are perhaps more at the cutting edge and better at recognising the new trends and the needs, but also they have quite different customer bases and business models and also quite different geographical footprints. Are you able to extrapolate anything from your findings more widely in terms of lessons you draw on the viability of different business models or perhaps the state of readiness in adapting across different regions? Well, I wanted to choose banks that I felt were on the cutting edge of doing digital across the world. So I wanted to make sure there was American, European and Asian banks in the mix. Some people say, well, what about African and South American banks? And someone recently said to me, well, that'll be your next book, Chris, won't it? So you never know. And to a certain extent, it was my last book, all about financial inclusion through digital inclusion, which was digital human. But what was interesting about all five banks is that they do have a number of commonalities. I mean, they've all been through a structured change operation that's taken years. I mean, BBVA started 20 years ago, JP Morgan Chase about six years ago. ING maybe 15 years ago, DBS 11 years ago. And as they've been through this change, they've all had certain things that they've done that are common to all of them, which are the lessons in the book. But I guess the key one that covers all of them is customer journey, customer obsession. The key aspect of what they're trying to do with their business is to reinvent the business around a customer obsession that emulates Amazon. Amazon is a business that is completely customer focused. Some would say too much so because they know more about you than your wife, husband, mother or father does based on your data. But that's how Amazon has built their business, a customer obsession built on data. And that's the commonality of all five of these banks and what they're going through. If you think about the way banks used to be, they were pretty much product focused. They're pushing products through channels using traditional media to customers and trying to get a share of your wallet by cross-selling more and more products. These five banks have dropped the whole idea of that concept. They're moving to, we have to be the business that as a customer, you feel understands you best in how you live your financial life. And I think that's the biggest common thing that I heard from all five, customer obsession around customer lifestyle. Chris, lastly, let's talk about what's what's next for you. Uh, you've just finished this book. Uh, the promotional tour, unfortunately, is disrupted by the, the current events and the travel restrictions. But I'm sure that you won't be. <laughs> it is indeed, um, and I'm sure that you won't be sitting idly by during this time. Uh, indeed, this book is just the most recent of many that you've authored, uh, and I also enjoy your traffic uh, on your blog and on Twitter. What's next for Chris Skinner? Oh, well, I'm sitting at home, obviously, like most people, in a lockdown, uh, and just thanking the heavens that the internet's still working. I hope it stays that way. So in the very short term, I'm using this time to try and learn Polish, which is an incredibly difficult language. There's far too many Zs. I'm using Duolingo for 30 minutes every day to try and improve my Polish understanding. My wife is Polish and her parents don't speak any English and I don't speak any Polish, which is the perfect relationship at the moment. It may change because I'm learning the language. But longer term, I've already got a new theme that resonating with me very strongly. I don't know whether it will be the next book, but it's highly likely to be, which would be coming out in 2022. And this would be around what I call purpose-driven banking. And I feel quite strongly that we're going through a sea change of humanity and how we think, and that we will not accept companies that are destroying our planet and promoting fossil fuels and greenhouse gas emissions. 
And I'm not talking about climate change. I'm talking about the climate emergency and the feeling that there is amongst millennials and Generation X and the next I generation around corporate activities and corporate life, which is financed by large financial institutions that behave pretty badly. I mean, I'm disgusted right now that in the massive stimulus packages that are coming out of governments to get to small businesses through this coronavirus crisis, the banks are not actually delivering what the governments are wanting. They're charging interest rates and also asking for security guarantees that are ridiculous. And it's not just this crisis we're going through right now, but it's been bubbling for decades. The, the next decade, we're going to see society and governments demanding that financial institutions are behaving responsibly to both the planet and to society. That's what I call purpose-driven banking. Purpose-driven banking is all about doing good for society, good for the planet, whilst at the same time making money. It can't just be about greed and making money. It has to be around a balance. And this actually resonates back to the last big financial crisis of 2008, where the UK regulator uh, at that time was the Financial Services Authority. And the chairman of that authority is or was Lord Adair Turner. And he actually said that most of what banking does is socially useless. And that's something that stayed with me. Because the banks retaliated and said, actually, we're very socially useful. But how can you prove that you are socially useful? That, to me, is what purpose-driven banking is about, doing good for society, proving that you're being socially useful, not just making money and not just being shareholder-focused, but being stakeholder-focused. I think that's something that's resonating in almost every aspect of society right now and will become a rallying call over the next decade. It's a really interesting point, Chris, and I can give some comfort that certainly at the levels of the, the IF Board of Directors, there's a lot of discussion on a, on a similar level of, of ensuring that the industry is not only profitable and uh, self-sustaining, but also that it is meeting the needs of society, and, and particularly when you touch on the theme of sustainability as, as just one example. So clearly there's more to do, um, but I can give the pleasing message that Board of Directors level, there's certainly a, a shared focus on a lot of those issues. Chris, thanks for joining us here on FRT. There's plenty to look forward to in your great new book, Doing Digital. Uh, as we mentioned, available uh, in the electronic form on Kindle and eBooks from April 7 and in the hard copy form from not too long after that. If I quickly highlight a couple of the things that I thought most resonated from our discussion, I think firstly, in terms of the situation that we find ourselves in with COVID-19, the way you described the shock of discovering that we don't have the control of our own lives anymore, but also in the way that differing firms are adapting to that. And I share your view that we won't be returning to all of the same norms that we had pre, pre-COVID, that we will be adapting. And, and the example you gave of how firms will find that distributed networks may have uh, greater value over the traditional physical office necessities of the past, I think is just one uh, really striking example of, of how the, the new normal will be very different from the old one. I like the point you made of how the the five banks that you've, you've spoken with don't treat digital as a, a standalone channel and rather as something that's more fundamental in how you reorient your business. And from that, the way that you talked about the, the role of leadership and the, I think it was a really striking point you made that some leaders don't always understand digital as being, uh, or they, they don't understand, I guess, the ramifications of digital and that it is more than just a product set. But in particular, the point you made of how the, the different remits that have been given out to chief digital officers and the distinction between those that are 
doing innovation. The example you gave of, of Piyush's instruction to Neil of getting the company to understand and bringing the people together and along on the digital journey versus those that, as you described it, are perhaps looking more for, for innovation theatre. Um, I think those are just a couple of the, the great uh, snapshots of the, or the great insights that you've shared with us. So, so we very much look forward to the book and to your continued research beyond that. Chris, thank you again. Thanks for having me, Brad. And I trust that uh, within a short time, I'll be sitting next to you in your office and having a chat face to face. Well, definitely looking forward to that. And we're also going to look for opportunities where, as the IAF does more of our uh, engagement around the world in a digital fashion, whether we can, uh, can include you uh, and hopefully host you in, in part of that in the near term. Looking ahead on FRT, I'm going to speak again with Kati Swaminen, founder of the Next Trade Group and lecturer at UCLA. Kati joined us last year on episode 32, and it was probably my favourite discussion of that year when she opened our eyes to some of the potential of 3D printing. Kati will join us again to look at the new disruptions to supply chains and the impacts for international trade and distributed manufacturing. And we're also going to talk about the potential of 3D printing for critical supplies like ventilators in the current climate. We're also going to look at the anticipated relaunch of the Libra white paper, something that we foreshadowed when we discussed the G20 and BIS agendas recently on episode 61. We'll continue with the IEF's digital transformation series with Deloitte with our upcoming second paper on some of the success factors. Some pretty similar issues to what we've talked about today, I should add. And also Rob Morgan from the American Bankers Association is going to join us to talk about some of the investments that they've made to help some of the smaller US banks to access new innovations for their businesses. I'm also going to conclude just with one final bit of good news that's just come through literally while we've been sitting here and and having this discussion. Our colleague Natalia Bailey, who you'll have heard on a number of our episodes, Natalia and her husband Brandon are delighted to welcome the arrival of their baby Bruno, safe and healthy. A bit of good news for us in these troubled times. Please join us again on FRT for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening to FRT.